And for the reading of God's word, if you would stand. We will read from Galatians 3, 10 through 18. This is the word of God. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged in a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Please be seated. Well, I don't know about you guys, but in the Shin household, we often have a battle at night. It is after the battle that we have had with our children to have them go to sleep. Once the kids are down, my wife and I get engaged in the battle for the remote control. My channels of preference are ESPN, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, and ESPN Miscellaneous. I don't know. There's so many. Or NBA TV, whatever. Uh, Fox Sports West. Um, that's about it. Um, and then Disney Channel once in a while. <laughs> Inside joke. I can't say it here. Um, my wife, she loves uh, Discovery Health. She loves like medical mysteries. She loves uh, um, Food Network. Like uh, Cake Challenge, Cupcake Challenge, Dessert Challenge, Chocolate Challenge. Um, and then one, so I, I prefer, I don't, I don't get really in, into, the, into that channel, except for one show. I don't know if it's that channel or not, but it's uh, a guy who hosts the show is Adam, Rick, Adam Richmond. The show is called Man vs. Food. This is uh, Mr. Cholesterol, right? A walking heart attack. He's a hero to single guys all over the world. He is, to some, he lives a dream life, right? He lives his dream life where he goes to these restaurants all over the United States where they have like food that is just maybe disgusting. <laughs> I don't know, it's just absurd. Like five-pound burritos 
and you eat it in an hour, you get a t-shirt, and you get a picture on the wall. You get like uh, four pounds of pancakes, eggs, and hash browns, and you get a plaque. Or you eat like a pizza with like 30 toppings, and a shake, then you get, I don't know, you get a t-shirt. So the whole show is a competition, him versus food. And it's surprising, like in the beginning, everything that you see looks pretty appetizing, by the end, you've lost your appetite. I think that's a good show to watch if you want to go on a diet. Um, and what's so surprising is he's able to like take care of most of what is presented before him. More often than not, he finishes. There are a few times, you know, he fails. He can't, can't do it. But it's surprising. And they ask him, like, how do you do this? How are you able to eat a five-pound burger? Right? How do you go about doing that? And he says one bite at a time. So, before us, Galatians 3, verse 15, all the way to chapter 4, verse 31, is, a five, is five pounds of biblical theology, right? Five pounds with a, a biblical theology with extra serving of uh, the law and the gospel, we go from Moses and Abraham, Sarah and Hagar, and just jurisprudence, inheritance law, and just covenant theology, dispensational theology, interpreting the Old Testament, the New Covenant. I mean, it gets, it's all in here, right? Five pounds of it. So how are we going to down this thing, Right? one bite at a time, right? verse by verse. Hopefully it'll help us digest these truths. Because if we do, it'll benefit us spiritually. It's not going to give us spiritual cholesterol. It's not going to give us spiritual heartburn. Right? It's going to build us up in our faith if we take it one bite at a time. So this morning, we're going to take a few nibbles. Right? We're going to just start slowly. Don't get intimidated by, this, by the five pounds right? Just look at the lettuce, right? Just look at the condiments. Just look at it a little bit and take few bites. Now, we're entering into the heart of that vexing issue that John Piper wrote about. Um, John Piper said, um, and I think he was here. I don't know if he's still here in Orange County. Maybe we've, you know, so many of you were there at the Desiring God conference. And maybe if they had a Q&A, you should have asked him about Galatians 3. If I was there, I would have asked him about Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. And he said, for the last 40 years of my ministry, no biblical issue has proved more recurrent or more vexing than the nature of the Mosaic law as it relates to the gospel and the new covenant. The pastoral implications for how you preach the gospel... Amat sanctification, comfort strugglers, give assurance, and admit people to membership in the church are huge. Now, this is why I want to encourage you not to jump to conclusions and not to be so confident in your assertions. Here is an, an eminent, and a godly man, a pastor for over 40 years, a theologian, a once a professor at a Bible college, and he struggles with this 
the complex relationship between law and gospel. So if he's struggling with it, we shouldn't be so glib about it. We shouldn't have like one sentence answers to this complexity. There should be some amount of like humility, a reservedness, a meekness as we approach this complex issue, especially in light of the fact that Pastor Piper says, even after 40 years, he still struggles with all the, the loose ends that, are, that, are, that exist here. So with that humble heart, by saying he's not 100% on every issue, knowing that, let's humbly, um, you know, slowly uh, dive into this text uh, to, to learn about these truths. Um, now, if you look at our, our passage today, verses 15 through 18, if you had an opportunity to just meditate on it, um, you know, the, one of the key steps of studying the Bible is um, observation. When you study the Bible, you want to just read and observe what is there. That's the first um, indispensable step to a faithful exegesis. And so if you were to look at verses 15 through 18, you would know that one word occurs four times here in this passage. And that this word occurs eight times in verses 15 through 29. And what is that word? It's the word promise. I promise. Um, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, adds, ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offering. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, referring to one, offering who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul the covenant previously ratified by, by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, um, I don't think it's a stretch by any, any means to say that promise is a key theme of our section this morning, if not for the rest of the chapter. So, the, so our, our um, homiletical outline is centered around this idea of promise promise that God made to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring and promise that idea is very simple I think from when we're very young we understand the concept of promise and so Paul with with laser focus locks in on this idea of God's promise to Abraham and to his offspring so four truths about this promise that God made four truths the first one is the permanence of this promise. The permanence of this promise. Um, throughout this chapter, Paul has been making a case. He's been stating a truth and defending it. The truth that he was proposing and defending is that justification is is received by faith alone, not through works. That the Holy Spirit is given to believers, received by believers. The Holy Spirit indwells in Christians, not by works, but by faith. 
that is his that is the heart of justification we studied this many weeks ago and that is rightfully so the heart of this book to the galatian believers if this is lost all of the gospel is lost all of christianity is lost and we are lost we are still in our sins this is all myth fable a delusion we are to be pitied among, among all men, most pitied among all men. We are fools, literally morons, because our sins remain without this basic truth that justification is by faith alone. And so Paul defended this in verses 1 through 5 by way of appealing to the experience of the believers in Galatia. So he appeals to them, and we talked about the uniqueness of everyone's experience. Everybody's experience is unique. I can't guarantee to you, you will like this meal. I can't promise to you, you will like this music, or you will like this movie. Um, But for the Christian, every single Christian, we have this common experience, and Paul appeals to that experience, which is that... The Holy Spirit came after faith. It was not faith and then we were baptized and God gave us a spirit. It was not we believed, we walked down the aisle, signed our name on a baptism certificate, or we took a membership class, or we started serving in ministry, or we overcame certain habitual sins, and then we were baptized by the Holy Spirit. That is not what believers experience. Right, true believers experience faith and then the Holy Spirit. And then fruits of the Holy Spirit, which is obedience. Any distortion, any reversal of that experience is inconsistent with the gospel. And it is at the very least false teaching, if not heresy. That is the teaching and experience of all religions apart from Christianity. So Paul appeals to their experience to say, you yourselves all the more should believe that justification is by faith alone because of what you've experienced, not just the gospel you've heard, but your experience. But knowing that experience is not, does not validate truth. That in our lives, experience is not the final arbiter of truth. Let God be true, every man a liar. We don't test the Bible with our experience. We test our experiences with the scriptures. Paul moves on to the second point of his defense, which is appealing to the word of God. And in verses 6 through (coughs) 9, he elicits the Old Testament and he speaks of Abraham. And how was Abraham justified? And what did God say to Abraham for him to be God's friend and to receive this blessing? And this blessing is not just a land. It's not just a son. It's not just a great nation. Those are all just earthly demonstrations of the far greater and superior blessing that is spiritual in nature, which is Abraham's sins are forgiven. God will not count his iniquities against him. Not only that, Abraham becomes a friend of God. And God becomes aligned, united, joined to Abraham by faith alone. So Paul moves from experience to the scriptures and particularly 
Abraham and God's words to Abraham. And then thirdly, he goes to uh, a biblical example. Uh, he goes to a scripture in a, in a theological or doctrinal sense. Verses 10 through 14, how it is, particularly verses 10, verses 10 and 11, how it is impossible to be justified through the works of the law. Because to be justified by works, you have to obey it perfectly. Right? James 2, if you break one single command of the Bible, you are a lawbreaker and you are guilty of breaking, you're as guilty as breaking all the commandments. So Paul said, you are cursed if you want to be under the law, you want to be accepted by God, approved by God through obedience, then there is no blessing for you what you will experience today in terms of your anxiety, your unbelief, fear, your uh, uh, isolation, your guilt and shame. Not only what you experience presently, but what you will experience on that, that day of the Lord is a curse. God will damn you. God will curse you. God will abandon, forsake you, and send you to hell because all have fallen short of the perfect glory of God that is revealed in the law. So he argues from the scriptures that not only are you blessed by faith, but if you go contrary, try to be blessed by works, then not only do you not get the blessing, you get the opposite, you get the curse. And this is why Jesus was cursed. Right? Cursed is anyone who hangs at a tree. So the apostles, knowing this verse from Leviticus, made it a point to say that Jesus was crucified. And to the point, using metaphorically, he hung on a tree. Even though literally it's not true, the idea was... The, the sinner is to be suspended from the earth. Right, that's how God judges that man. And, and they were making that point. Jesus was suspended from the earth as if on a tree. And he was cursed on our behalf so that we might receive God's blessing. So you see Paul going from experience, going from Abraham, going to the law. And then in verses 15 through 18, he appeals to a human example. He gives us an illustration to give a human example so he is taking these great and lofty themes these um, these transcendent truths and he is putting it on the bottom shelf for us to understand human example now the reason it's difficult for us is what's so familiar to the first century readers is not so familiar to us because there is a cultural gap, a legal gap, a language gap, a chronological gap. There is a geographical gap. If we were alive, first century in Galatia, and we read verses 15 through 18, we would laugh at John Piper. Right? He would say, we would laugh at Cornerstone Bible Church. What's so hard to understand? Everybody, my 10-year-old son knows what Paul is talking about because they live in this world. For us, this human example is tailored to the first century Galatians. So we need to, um, to cross that chasm, that gap that exists. But it is a human illustration that Paul is given that is quite simple. He talks about the per- about permanence of this promise 
and he takes us into the world of jurisprudence. Now, there are a few lawyers in our church, and they're perking up, right? They're happy right now, because this is their human example. They understand contracts. They understand uh, legalese and covenants and, and promissory notes. And that is what Paul is talking about here. Now, specifically, it's not so much a contract. It is not like a covenant in a, in a, in a way we understand it in a commercial setting or a legal setting. Diatheke, the word here, usually means covenant. But here, many commentators and I agree, the better translation is testament. What is the difference? Um, I, you know, when, when, our, when our parents, you know, when I, you know, I, I never wrote a will, my last will and testament, until um, I got married. Because before I got married, I had nothing to bequeath, right? What do I have to give to anyone? You can, you know, Daniel Pill, you can have my basketball, right? right? You know, Ray, you can have my basketball shoes. That's about all I had. But after you get married and you have kids, you start having stuff. And you just don't want people to have a garage sale and just pick at it. You want to bequeath it to people. And so you, I wrote out my will, last will and testament. I think the first one, soon and I wrote, we gave it to Kelly. And I, I think so, right? And we gave it to you. Don't open it if we come back, right? <laughs> open it if we don't come back. And so we came back, so uh, we got it back. But that's what Paul is talking about. Promise in terms of inheritance, not a contract. And why do I say that? Keep your hand on Galatians 3. With your other hand, turn back to Genesis 15. Paul is talking about Abraham. He's talking about, he's quoting from the promise that God made to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 7, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 24. He made he gave this promise several times to Abraham, but it's one promise. He's not making five different promises. It is this one promise of blessing. Now, uh, what is the, the substantive issue? Chapter, chapter 15 of Genesis is the issue of inheritance, the issue of an heir. He has no one to give it to. Because he doesn't have a son, someone outside of his direct family line will get his blessing, his inheritance, this promise. And that is a dilemma for Abraham and Sarah. Um, verse 1, The Lord Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. <clears throat> Behold, <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and, the number, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be and then verse 6 and Abraham he and he believed God he believed the Lord Yahweh and God counted it to him as righteousness so a contract is usually a bilateral contract 
where two parties come into an arrangement, an agreement, where they both fulfill obligations and they both receive the benefits of that contract. But that is not what's happening here. God, God is not entering into a bilateral covenant with Abraham where you do this and I will do it. I will do this and you do this. No, it's an inheritance, it's a blessing, it's a unilateral promise that God is make God has made to Abraham and it's I will, I will, I will. A will simply declares what one party intends to do. A last will and testament is a legal arrangement in in, in which one party bestows his or her estate to someone else. It is a grant and once it is signed, sealed, delivered, and ratified, it is irrevocable. It cannot be abrogated, annulled, amended, adjusted. It is legally binding exactly as it stands. The terms cannot be changed. And Paul's saying, that's a human example. You understand this. Right. He says, his argument is from lesser to the greater. You understand, right? Your dad passes away. Therefore, his last and will of testament comes into effect. And it, it does not go into probate. It is binding. It is final. The decision has been made. If that is the case for human promises, how much more God? His argument is from lesser to the greater. It's permanent. It is permanent. It is forever. Right? Just like a human covenant, testament, God's testament is permanent. He moves on to verse 16. Now who are the parties that are involved in this promise? Permanence and then the parties. Who are the a people that receive the benefits of this promise. Now Paul, he's a very careful student of the Bible. This is where um, being specific, being detailed, it's like lawyers, right? The whole law decision of a case hinges upon grammar, hinges upon a verb, hinges upon plural or singular to that minutest detail a court case uh, stands or falls likewise here Paul is not a careless reader or a student or exegete of the Bible he carefully looks at the Old Testament and he, he notes that there are two parties involved in this covenant not millions Two parties, not millions. Right. Who are these two parties? It's Abraham and to his offspring, singular. Right. Not offsprings, plural. If this promise was given, if that S was there, not in the Hebrew, but, right? Let's say, I don't know what the plural in Hebrew, Jason could tell you later. If the Hebrew it was plural, then it would change everything. The Judaizers are right. We must all become Jews, right? To become 
to receive the blessings of Abraham. Because his promise was made to Abraham and to his children. But Paul says, no, that's not what it says. God made this promise to two specific people. And we'll study this. We're just nibbling here. (coughs) Paul expounds this. (coughs) Actually, in the very next passage, he made this promise to Abraham and to one other person, offspring. And who is that person? Who is, verse 16, Christ? It's Jesus Christ. He is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the true offspring. He is the other recipient of this promise that God made in the Old Testament. Therefore, the covenant was all about Jesus. Abraham and Jesus. And God made this covenant unilaterally. Uh, I don't know where you are at Galatians 3 or Genesis 15, but if you go back to Genesis 15, and we see this highlighted more on how this uh, promise was ratified um, in verse 8. Abraham is a good, you know, he's like a He's a pretty smart guy. Like uh, somebody makes a promise, you know, children, they say a pinky promise or they, I don't know, swear on their mom's like long-term, you know, place of rest, right? Or like they, you know, children, I don't know, they'll make you say it three times. When we grow up, that's not enough, right? If you're still doing pinky promises from like, <clears throat> from like, you know, business or your employers or you go buy a car, then you got a lot of growing up to do. We, we go beyond that. So Abraham, he's an older guy now. Uh, and he says, all right, God, you made this promise to me. How am I to know that I'll possess this? How do I know this will come to pass? <clears throat> he said to him, God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat, three years old, ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over the other, but he did not cut the the birds in half. Verse 10. Now, today, how do we make contracts? We usually uh, sign, we initial. If it's very important, we get a notary, we fingerprint to make sure it's, we are the ones who are signing. Um, Old Testament times, they would ha- they would shake hands. Um, sometimes I don't know why they would put their hand on the other guy's thigh. Different strokes, I don't know. That's what you, we do. They would do that. Praise God, we don't do that anymore. Um, but one thing they would do is they would get animals and they would cut it in half, right? And so that's where we get the, you know, the. How was it? Idiom? Let's cut a, cut a deal. Is that an idiom? What is it? Is that right? Thanks, Jesus. Right? Um, so let's, let's cut a deal. Right? It comes from this. And so they would cut animals in half, and both parties, <coughs> arm in arm, will walk through middle of the animals. And it was both of them solemnly agreeing that if either party fails to deliver on their part of the promise, then this will happen to them. Right? They'll with their own lives. They will see the blood, the dead animals, and that's how serious this covenant is. 
right? They will both walk down saying that they're both entering into this covenant, this contract together. Now God tells Abraham to do this and he falls into a deep sleep and he awakes and he is shocked. He can't believe it. Because he's waiting for God to take him through and walk together. Saying, Abraham, I will bless you, make you a great name, great nation, give you this land, descendants. I'll give you this blessing, this blessing of being my friend, communing with me, having a relationship with the living God. I'll give you this awesome privilege. You'll be my, my friend. <coughs> and on your part, you have to do a thousand and one things. You promise to obey me perfectly, then I will do this. Let's walk down together. That's what he's expecting. But what happened? Oh, he found what deep sleep and uh, um, verse eight, verse 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these two pieces. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the symbolism here, but it is a, a like just a, it's a theophany. It's a visual depiction of God Himself in fire, and God walks through these two animals, cut animals alone. God is the only one that goes through these animals, and Abraham doesn't walk through. De- declaring that this is not a bilateral covenant, but this is a last will and testament that God is enjoining himself to, binding himself to, and he will do this, and he will fulfill this promise, even if it means his life. Right? Even if it costs him his life, he will, pro- he will bless Abraham and his offspring. And um, <clears throat> New Testament tells us that that's what happened. <clears throat> to fulfill this promise, God had to give his son Jesus died. He was cut off. He, he, he was cast, off, cast away. He was crucified. He was murdered. He died. He, he paid the ultimate price to fulfill this promise. God never asked Abraham to walk through those animals. He did it alone telling us that <clears throat> the promise is permanent, but the parties involved is God alone promising to Abraham and Jesus Christ. It is not Abraham joining together in this contract, but no, God alone promising to bless Abraham and his offspring who is Christ. So, permanence, and then the parties, the third truth is the priority of the promise. Now, what about the law? What about the law? The Judaizers' main argument was, yeah, yeah, Paul, we agree. You're not saying anything new. Tell us something we don't know. That's not our point. Paul, you're, you're uh, putting down a straw man argument, right? You're, you're destroying something that we already agree. 
Our argument is the law came and it replaced it. Right? It nullified it. Right? It is, we're under the law, not under promise. Well, Paul is getting to that. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. These two principles, law and gospel, yes, they're both in the Bible. Yes, they're both important. But which is the priority? Chronologically, we can't see the law temporally. As if the law just existed always. No. We need to, there is a Bible called a chronological Bible. And it is worth getting and reading. Because the, the order of the books of the Bible is not given to us canonically. It's given to us chronologically. Right? So the first book is Genesis. And then it's Job. And the Psalms are interwoven through Samuel and 2 Samuel. I mean the prophets, the Prophets, prophets are interwoven between, uh, within the books. And even the New Testament, it's all interwoven according to how they were chronologically written. So Paul gives a historical lesson chronologically. The law wasn't always here. The law came after the promise. And not just a few seconds later, a few minutes later, the law came over 430 years after the promise. Just that alone tells you that though law and gospel are important, the priority by far is God's promise. Right? God's promise. And you cannot annul this. You cannot uh, uh, add to it. You cannot amend it. In fact, if you make a promise, if you say, I'll give this to you for free... And after you agree, I tell you, well, shipping and handling is $500, right? Then it's not free. It's a scam. Right? Don't fall for it, right? It's not true. Paul is saying it is no longer a promise if you attach law to it, right? No, God made a promise and he's the only one who walked through and he cannot be changed. And the law came 430 years later. Now, the Judaizers loved Moses. Paul one-ups them and going to Abraham. And Abraham's important because if justification came by way of law, then what happens to Abraham? Right? Sorry, Abe. Right? He's not justified. Because there's no law. He can't obey the law. It wasn't given. Right? In fact, most of the patriarchs was pre pre. Sinai, right, pre-Exodus uh, uh, 19, they weren't given the law. But how were they justified? See, chronologically, it doesn't hold water. It, 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 it is not true. Just by a simple review of Jewish history, Old Testament history, it says, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, accounted, considered to him as righteousness. And Abraham, in Genesis 12, when he, the only condition for Abraham was stepping out of his, uh, of his land. Once he stepped out, 
by faith, Hebrews tells us, the inheritance began, the covenant was given, it was ratified, the sign was given of circumcision in Genesis 17, given to Abraham for 400 plus years before the law. They were justified, and we were all justified. Now, next passage is, then why did God give the law? Right? Why did he do that in the first place? And Paul says, because of transgressions. Right? I mean, in our homeschooling at our house, we constantly have to come up with rules. Right? Rules. We have to like think all the time. Things that they cannot say to one another. If our children were tender-hearted, kind to one another, forgiving each other as God forgave them, we don't have to keep making up, not making up, but adding rules. But it's because they're so... Sinful. Likewise with our government. Why are we constantly making up rules? Because people create ways to hurt one another, rob each other. It's because of transgression, but not in any way amending or annulling the promise given to Abraham and to Jesus. Now the final one is God's plan for justification was always by promise. Right. So permanence, parties, Priority and the, and the plan, God's plan was via promise. Verse 18, forever. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Right. So God's way was not through the law. From the beginning, it was always through promise by way of faith. Now, we'll leave you with four, four thoughts here, four closing thoughts. Um, first one is, well, James, that's great. I'm happy for Abraham, happy for Jesus. But what, is, uh, what does this have to do with me, right? What does this have to do with us? It's like I tell you, you know, I won the lottery. And you're like, I'm happy for you. Right? What does it have to do with me? Nothing. I just want you to know. Right? I'm very happy right now because I won the lottery. Right? It's kind of like, what, what, what kind of news, how is this good news to us? Well, it's good news to us because this promise of blessing that God made to Jesus, this is how he's made a way for us. Right? That through faith in Christ, we become united with him. The only way we can sneak in to this blessing is to be in Jesus, in Christ. On our own, we can't, through obedience, it's impossible, right? There's no other way to get into this blessing, to this inheritance, unless we become in Him and part of His family. We become adopted by God. And how are we adopted by God? It's through faith. And when we trust in Jesus, we experience spirit baptism. And that's what physical baptism uh, depicts. That we are dipped into the water. We are in Jesus. We are immersed in Him. So I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and I in Him. William Perkins, this Puritan pastor, said... The promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ. 
and then in Christ to all that believe in him. Right? We are in Christ. That is how we receive this blessing. Through faith in Christ, we are united with Jesus. Therefore, all the blessings given to Jesus is naturally given to us. John Stott, do 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 you have this? Thanks, brother. John Stott, every sinner who trusts in Christ crucified for salvation, quite apart from any merit or good works, receives the blessing of eternal life and thus inherits the promise of God made to Abraham. Philip Ryken, uh, salvation, I'll take that thanks back. (laughs) Philip Ryken, Philip Ryken said, salvation in Christ is not a commercial transaction. My relationship with God is not based on my ability to make a deal or strike a bargain. The Christian life is not a quid pro quo so that if I do what God wants, then God will do what I want. God simply does not operate in this way. Instead, my relationship with God is based entirely in believing His gracious promise. So how do we get into Christ? It is not manipulating God through works. right? Or we're out of the covenant because we sin. It is by believing in the promise made in Christ. Right? That is how we become inherit we inherit this blessing. Okay? That's great. Then uh we get this question how much do I have to believe? Right to inherit this. Right, how much? Um Alex Fung is our admin guy running around behind the scenes coordinating worship service for this month and he got saved three, four years ago, and uh, he emailed me, and that was his question. This is a question we get constantly. All right, we're saved by faith, right? We're justified by faith, but how much faith do I have to have? And that's the dilemma. That's the difficulty. I grant you were saved by faith, but I cannot believe like you, James. I cannot believe like my uh, small group leader. I cannot believe like these people. I, I just have, I never have enough faith. The Bible says, all the faith you need is for you to know, right, that it's not about what you do, and enough faith to trust in Jesus. Right? Enough faith. So Keller gives this illustration. You're falling off a cliff, right? You're falling down on your way to death, and you see a branch, right? All it takes is for you to believe to grab that branch. And the branch holds you. It's not your faith that saved you. It's the strength of that branch, right? But you need to have that faith to grab hold of it. That's all you need. That's the amount of that's the mustard seed of faith. You know you cannot save yourself. Right? You know you cannot give anything, present anything, cooperate anything for your own justification. You know you have to be saved. All you need is that mustard seed of faith where you 
go outside of yourself and you grab onto Jesus. You cling to him. You hold on to him. And once you do that, what saves you is not how strong you hold. He holds on to you. John 10, 27-29. My father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand or my hand. I and the father are one. So we are justified not by the amount of our faith. No, we're saved by the greatness of the object of our faith. Because as soon as we reach out to him, he holds to us. Two more. Okay, I understand what it means for me how to get in. I understand for me in terms of faith acknowledge my sinfulness and just cry out to Jesus reach out to him what about others what about others Um, in terms of other believers we'll start there the whole Gentile problem in Galatia was all about the law so they had, um, because of the law, they had, they had, they created a division within the church. Those who obey the law and those who do not. Specifically, those who are circumcised and those who are not circumcised. When we relate to one another by way of law, then we are dividing the church. So if we relate to one another, whether here or newcomers or visitors and our heart mindset of unity our fellowship our koinonia spiritual unity is based on the law then it's all about um, do you smoke right? do you drink beer right are you dressed immodestly right do you wear jewelry or, or makeup or do you What's your politics like? Right? What is your view on, on all these social or political issues? What is your interpretation on, on these verses? What is your stance on these doctrinal positions? If it's based on law, then we relate to one another in law. We're constantly dividing based on what we, what we do, what we are doing. That's the Gentile problem in Galatia. And so for us, it's not circumcision. For us, it's not diet. I don't, we don't care if you eat pork or not. That's not an issue for us. But we're not innocent of these, uh, this baggage, this sinful, priding ourselves in the law, being doers of the law, and dividing believers into categories and, and segment, segmentizing the church. Um, Paul's answer is um, Galatians three twenty six through twenty nine. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according 
to promise. We don't have to compete. We don't have to judge. I think Eugene says this. It's like going to buffet and being hoarding like uh, French fries. Your hometown buffet, you're hoarding the pizza or chicken. And you bring it to your table and you don't want to share. That makes no sense. We're at a buffet. You can go again and get more pizza, get more chicken, get more fries. Why do you have to treat your friend or, or, or someone next to you that way? It's all, it's all you can eat. Likewise, God has given us blessing. And we're all in Christ through faith alone. So for us to use the law to judge each other makes absolutely no sense. And that's the sin of Judaizers in just in a different form continuing in our midst. Right. Paul's answer is, union with Christ through faith means that we're united to one another. And the only thing we consider is faith in Christ. Greet one another with a holy kiss. For a Jewish person, Christian, Jewish person to kiss a Gentile person was unthinkable. For a Lord to kiss a slave was culturally like scandalous. Paul is saying, though, in the church, all that matters is faith in Christ. If that person is a believer of Jesus, then all these other categories are abolished in that instant. We are to openly embrace and love one another. That's how we are to relate to one another. This is how justification by faith alone informs our relationships. Fourthly, to unbelievers, how does this inform our, our, our preaching? Definitely, we preach the gospel. You guys all know, I'm going to say that. Right? But the question is, what about the law? Where is the role of the law in preaching to unbelievers? Um, you know that e- e- gospel email through Facebook there's a part two and part two is all about not all about some of it's about this and when we preach the gospel what we are to do is preach the law higher not lower you have to raise the law not lower the law when we're preaching to unbelievers um I mean, that is why I preached on spiritual pride last week, knowing that unbelievers will be here. I want to preach not just on sin, but on sins of righteousness. I want to deconstruct Christianity before their eyes so that they see Christianity is not just another religion. They're not going to get scolded by coming to church on Easter. What, what, what's going to be exposed is sins of the heart, spiritual pride that is at the root of sin and also righteousness. That is what Jesus did. His first sermon, Sermon of the Mount, he didn't go and renounce sins of Israel. He renounced sins of righteousness. Right? Sermon of the Mount. You that are praying, right, to be seen by men, that's not true prayer. Praying in secret. You fast to be seen by men, that's a sin and righteousness. You're fasting, but God hates it. Right? You are giving, right? To be seen by men. God doesn't acknowledge that at all. You're just giving to yourself. 
Whether you're giving a dollar or taking a dollar, you're doing it for yourself, so God doesn't accept it. What did Jesus do in his first sermon? He raised the law, he exposed false righteousness, and he intensified the law where people said, I'm not an adulterer, I never committed adultery in my life. Unlike this person, Jesus said, really? If in your heart, and this gets all the guys, you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Who among you have not sinned? Cast the first stone. Right, John 8. And it's the older men, they leave first. Because they're humbled by life and their own sinfulness. The younger men, they're, they're the last to let go of that stone. Some of you guys are still holding on to that stone. Still won't let it go. When the law says, you pride yourself in the law, but the law says, if in your heart you lust, then you're an adulterer. You said you've never lied. Every idle word will be held against you. You've never stolen anything. If you covet in your heart, you've never murdered. If you hate somebody, if you do not forgive someone, you've hated that person. So what did Jesus do? He raised the law to its rightful place. See, what legalists do is they lower the law. Now, gospel preachers, we raise the law. And we say, when God says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, He means it. He means God is not happy unless you love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, Anything less than that is not acceptable to a God who is thrice holy. You preached the law unvarnished, right? Unhindered. Clearly, the full frontal force of the law, and that destroys sinners and those who are righteous in their own eyes. And it drives them to hope in Jesus. J. Gratia Machen. I read this quote a year, maybe a couple years ago. I'm just now understanding it. A new and more powerful proclamation of law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. As it is, they are turning aside from the Christian pathway they are turning to the village of morality and to the house of Mr. Legality who is reported to be very skillful in relieving men of their burdens. Making Christ master in the life, putting into practice the principles of Christ by one's own efforts. These are merely new ways of earning salvation by one's obedience to God's commands. And they are undertaken because of a lax view of what those commands are. So it always is a low view of law always brings legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. So how do we relate to non-believers? We preach Christ, definitely. But we begin... We begin by preaching the law, right, the commands of God, highest way possible, where it's not about external obedience, but it's about the heart. Loving God and 
loving one another as you love yourself. If that doesn't get them, nothing will. You must love your neighbor, be as happy as you are for yourself for them. Right? You must love them as you love yourself and preach all the implications of the, of the, of the law so that they would be pummeled by the law and it would drive them to the promise of grace given to Jesus. Let's pray. I fear, Lord, I fear that um, that we would miss it. We would miss this great picture of you walking to the dead animals by yourself because of our great unbelief, because of our refusal to divest ourselves of our own confidence, our own dependence, our own boasting fear of losing control we'd rather have a bilateral contract where we have control where we can do certain things to ensure a proper outcome but Lord help us to see the law in its rightful place living in this country with the constitution and the bill of rights we don't understand the power of a monarch and its laws and how binding it is to its uh, citizens and, and we need to see the impossibility of this law how we fail at the very first step that we have no hope apart from Jesus apart from faith in him so God we ask you humbly to grant us faith that we are falling over the edge every day every hour we trip and fall or we jump because of our sinfulness Lord, we pray you would grant us faith to reach out to you, not to look within, to reach out to you with our weak, imperfect, fragile faith uh, and experience your, your strength, experience your power, experience your love and grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.